After five years traveling overland to every country in Africa, Francis Tapon has some amazing stories. When I told him I wanted to go there and drive across it, he said, no way, you're just, you're going through a war zone, basically. Coming up, we'll find out what kind of journey he had. They balanced my car on six canoes. When Edward Wilson Lee went to South Sudan, he found that a local Shakespeare production has had a big part to play in establishing their new nation. It was an experience which allowed a lot of different South Sudanese tribes who had never been able to participate in any kind of joint activity as a nation to come on stage and to do something together. And hear why the region of Normandy is one of the favorite countryside getaways in France. You see cows everywhere, happy cows, so we have lots of cheese. An epic journey across Africa, finding Shakespeare in South Sudan and the pleasures of Normandy. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's a favorite weekend getaway from Paris, and the region comes complete with great scenery, important historical sites, and its own tasty specialties. We'll explore what makes Normandy such a great destination a little later in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And adventure traveler and filmmaker Francis Tapon checks in with us from the end of the road in Egypt. He's just completed his five-year-long quest to visit every one of the 54 countries in Africa. Francis joins us from Luxor, where he's been celebrating with a cruise on the Nile in just a bit. First, let's explore how Shakespeare's been playing a role in the decolonization of Africa as the new nation of South Sudan forges its own identity. We're joined now by an English literature professor who found that all the world loves Shakespeare, even in Africa's newest nation. He grew up in Kenya with American and British parents who worked as conservationists there. Today, Edward Wilson Lee is a professor of literature who teaches Shakespeare at Cambridge. He returned to East Africa to explore how the writings of William Shakespeare have played a defining role in the region from colonial times to the process of establishing new nations. His travels included a stop in Juba, the capital of South Sudan. It's the world's newest nation born out of decades of civil war, but whose challenges are far from over. Edward outlines what he found in his book, Shakespeare in Swahili Land. Edward Wilson Lee, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. So tell us a little bit about your love of Shakespeare and your connection with East Africa. So I grew up in East Africa. I went to boarding school in Switzerland and then university in the United Kingdom. And I fell in love with Shakespeare during my teenage years and at university and ended up teaching that. But I didn't think until I stumbled upon the beginnings of this project that I'd be able to connect these two parts of my life growing up in East Africa. Mm. But um, <laughs> I found the beginnings of the project in this one of the earliest texts printed in Swahili was a translation of Charles and Mary Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. So I went out to East Africa, to Zanzibar, to research that, and just found from there that it was a, a thread I could tug at, and stories just kept coming and coming. And it covers really the whole history of Eastern Africa from the mid-19th century to the present day, and, and has just an endless cast of colorful characters involved in it. In your, your book, Shakespeare in Swahili Land, is a reference to the language that's spoken through most of East Africa. And uh, Sudan just barely makes that terrain. Talk about, uh, just briefly to set the stage, the story of South Sudan. It's been in the news in the last decade. Yeah, so South Sudan, historically, because of how the British divided the region up during the colonial period and afterwards, had been part of a single country with what is now just known as Sudan. But the northern part of the country is a very Arabic-influenced and Arabic-speaking nation, whereas the southern part is much more Bantu, shares much more with the countries to its south. So 
South Sudan declared independence from the rest of the country in 2011. And as one of the first acts as a country, South Sudan sent a Shakespeare play performed by a troupe from their capital, Juba, to the Globe to Globe Festival in London in 2012. You know, having spent years looking at the you know the mixture between politics and history and, and culture through the lens of Shakespeare in East Africa, mm. I, I was dying to see this happening in real time in the world's newest nation in, mm. in South Sudan. So I, I went out to meet the man who, who translated Cymbeline into Juba Arabic. So you traveled to South Sudan to research your book. Normal tourists don't go to South Sudan, do they? What, what did you find? What was it like going there? Uh, what does it take to go there? Yeah, it was it was a a pretty unusual experience. You know, the South Sudanese embassy was just a, a rented office space uh, in a kind of regional part of London. Pretty much everyone else going was an aid worker or someone working for an embassy or a, an NGO. So when I got there, there was almost no provision for tourists in order to be allowed in the country. In order to get a visa, you had to book into a tourist hotel, but the tourist hotel was essentially shipping containers uh, with beds and air conditioning and satellite TV inside them. Again, you know, largely catering to to people who were there working for aid agencies and, and development agencies. So it certainly wasn't set up for your average tourist. And, you know, Juba is a town with very little infrastructure, very few buildings, more than a story tall, one paved road. And the the wounds from the Civil War, which had been being fought between the North and the South for decades, were still very fresh. In fact, the only place you could buy a souvenir was a local craft project in which women who had suffered sexual violence during the Civil Wars made craft products to be sold on. And you wrote about how it was actually... In spite of how desperately poor the country is, it was quite expensive to hop into a taxi or quite expensive to stay in a hotel. Oh, yeah. I mean, because in large part, everyone there is on a, a governmental expense account, usually, because the only travelers are development travelers. So as uh, is so often the case in Africa, when a, a new nation is being born and aid money is, is flooding in, there are small operators who are pretty canny at turning up and providing the services providing taxi rides and hotels and even there's a dollar supermarket which had a, a pretty mm. wide selection of champagne magnums mm. as long as you're willing to pay in dollars but for the average south sudanese there was very little infrastructure right now do i understand english is the official language of south sudan english is now yes is the official language of south sudan and in fact there's an extraordinary shakespearean story behind that mm in that one of the reasons that they chose English to be the official language, it was obviously in part a rejection of Arabic, the Arabic language of, of the North, which had been the official language of the country from which they had left. But one of the brigadiers in the South Sudanese People's Liberation Army, who was central to making this decision to move to English, fell in love with Shakespeare, a volume of Shakespeare that had been given to him by a missionary uh, when he was fighting as a boy soldier in the civil wars in, in the 1980s. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Edward Wilson Lee. He's a professor of literature at Cambridge and the author of Shakespeare in Swahili Land in Search of a Global Poet. His website is edwardwilsonlee.com. This is one of these countries that is kind of the result of colonial border drawing generations ago, which was ignoring ethnic realities. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely, yes. Essentially, the, the British put together two administrative regions for their own 
convenience, which shared very little in terms of a historic culture. The North is a very Arabic-influenced place with cultural influences from Egypt and, and the Middle East,、uh, whereas the South is、uh, filled with, you know, a much more Bantu-influenced culture that, that looks south. So, if we think of the most desperate, struggling, falling-apart countries—Libya, Syria, Iraq, Sudan—a lot of their problems do go back to careless, selfish colonial line drawing a century ago, don't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think、mm-hmm. a lot of these places are are living through the consequences of decisions that were made a, a long time ago. So now we have this、um, bold little country breaking away from the majority of the Sudan because they are ethnically different, and they have an affinity for Shakespeare. You know, I would imagine you can take some of the themes of Shakespeare's great plays, swap out a few of the proper nouns, and, and have something that provides for a communal identity. Is is that actually a part of Shakespeare's purpose in South Sudan? Is just helping people relate to the struggles they've had with colonial overlords, just like、um, combating forces did centuries ago in Shakespeare's plays. Yeah, so one of the extraordinary things about this translation of of Cymbeline, which is really not a very well known Shakespeare play, it's not one of the the greatest hits, was not only it's a story about the formation of British identity as Britain separates from the Roman Empire, so it's a story of rebellion, the British rebellion against the Roman Empire. So it's really a story that thinks about the violence of war and national identity and 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 the relationship between the two, but. In putting this play on, it was also, you know, an experience which allowed a lot of different South Sudanese tribes who had never been able to participate in any kind of joint activity as a nation to come on stage and to do something together. So the production that was put on was intentionally mixing the tribal dresses of all these different tribes and literally enacting. A kind of unity that they were still having to work through, and still are having to work through in in a very real sense in the in the political domain. But this was creating a story which was a story of nation building and a story that was bringing all of the different parts of South Sudan together. So it it was an extraordinary artistic moment. So could you envision sitting with a at a at a venue filled with enthusiastic locals, watching a Shakespeare play in the local language in South Sudan? What would the scene be like? And I can just imagine the play having been adapted to the, the cultural struggles of, of, of this generation. People just getting into it and, and whooping it up. What would that be like if you happen to be able to witness that in South Sudan? Yeah, so they did perform the、uh, production many times back in in Juba after it had been performed in London. They were largely outdoor performances. Although the, the strangest part of the story is that so central to The early part of South Sudanese identity formation was this play, the Shakespeare play. That there, there was a plan. It may still be in train to build a replica of Shakespeare's globe, which you can visit in London,、mm-hmm. in Juba, in South Sudan,、mm. with slight South Sudanese adaptations. But yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a, a production that draws you in. You know, there's an extraordinary moment in Cymbeline when Posthumus, the male hero. Is is approached by Imogen, the the heroine, with whom he is deeply in love, with, who he's wronged, but he doesn't recognise her, and he he knocks her down and is about to commit violence upon this person who he doesn't recognise. And I think you know, for a country that has been through so much trauma, this dramatic moment of 
people reaching such violent states, but then coming to a, a recognition that actually there is a there is a past, a distant past, in which they they shared something and something special and something that united them. So I think there, you know, it, it's a really striking play in that that regard. Edward Wilson Lee, thanks so much for giving us an insight into the impact of Shakespeare beyond Western culture, specifically in Swahili land. The book Shakespeare in Swahili Land: In Search of a Global Poet. And Edward, um, I think you could make a good case that uh, if we had one global poet, it could be Shakespeare. He certainly meant a lot to an awful lot of people. And I think one of the wonderful things about Shakespeare's part in world literary history is that the parts of the world who have adopted him and, and adapted him are, are giving him back to the English-speaking world, wholly renewed and changed and, and, and in many ways much more interesting. All right. Great book. And thank you, Edward, so much for being with us and best wishes with your teaching. Thanks for having me on, Rick. We'll take your calls in a bit at 877-333-7425 as tour guides from France tell us what they love best about a countryside getaway to Normandy. But first, we're calling on Francis Tapon from his post in Luxor, Egypt. A few years back, Francis wrote an invigorating guide to the hidden Europe after couch surfing his way around the former Iron Curtain countries. He shared his plans to make it to every country in Africa, even the rough ones. And now, five years later, he did it. We'll find out what it was like next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Jambo Nyote. Nasafiri, now Rick Steves. I'm Tom Simpson from San Francisco, California, and that was Swahili for... Hello, everybody. I travel with Rick Steves. I'm Jambo Nyote, Nasafiri, na Rick Steves. He did it. A few years ago, we spoke on the phone with Francis Tapon from Tanzania. He was in Africa, and his mission was to visit all 54 countries in Africa, even the difficult ones. His African adventure is now coming to a close, and Francis calls us from Egypt to let us know how it was to visit every country in Africa. Francis, congratulations. Thank you so much, Rick. Wow. Now, you're uh, in Egypt. Where exactly are you in Egypt? In Luxor, near the Valley of the Kings and Queens. What's that like after having gone through all of the rough and tumble of uh, the African continent to come to a country that it must feel a little bit like you're, you're back in the mainstream? Yes, it's a very strange to see a creature that I haven't seen that much in Africa. It's called a tourist. Wow, tourism. <laughs> now, you went to 54 countries, and you, you mentioned even the difficult ones. What were the, some of the biggest challenges in accomplishing this, this amazing goal of visiting every last country in Africa? Well, one, I made it more difficult on myself because I didn't just want to visit the country, but I also want to climb the tallest mountain of each of those countries. And so that little additional hurdle made a difficult journey into an extremely difficult journey. One of the challenges also is just going over land, border crossings. So I wasn't taking planes almost ever except to visit the seven island nations of Africa. So a lot of logistical challenges for sure. Now, when you think about the tallest peaks in each country, are there major peaks in, in most of these countries, or, or were a lot of them just walking up to the top of a, of a grassy mound? Yes, you're right. There are lots of parts, especially, let's say, in West Africa, except for Guinea. Most of West African mountains are pretty short, less than 3,000 feet or about 1,000 meters or so. Uh-huh. 
but there are quite a few mountains that are challenging. Maybe they're not so high, but they're steep or they're very difficult to get to. I'll give you one example. The tallest mountain of Libya is right near the Chad border. It's not very high. It's about 2,000 meters or so, so it's about 6,600 feet. Not a very high mountain, but it takes three days of walking with no water to get there, not to mention over a week to drive to it wow. from the nearest town. You're going through desert. It's very remote and very difficult in its own way. Were there any countries where you really felt it was, frankly, reckless to be traveling there as, as a Caucasian traveler and so on from the first world? Yes. For example, South Sudan was probably the most foolish of them all. I mean, there was the, I talked to the council in uh, Kampala in Uganda at the embassy there, and he just, when I told him I want to go there and drive across it, he said, no way, you're just, you're going through a war zone, basically. So yeah. South Sudan in 2017 was really bad shape, and I was going through it in the middle of it. So instead, I sneaked in from the Uganda border to climb the tallest mountain, which is called Kinyeti, the tallest mountain of South Sudan. Uh, I sneaked in. That was reckless. Everybody told me, don't do it, but in the end, yeah. I, I pulled it off. Did you ever run into any problem where you were in, in actual danger? I was strangled in Cameroon, kind of mugged, basically, and we also got robbed uh, in Madagascar. We were walking across Madagascar. That was about a four-month journey from north to south, and also got mugged there. And it got burglarized a couple of times, too. Mm-hmm. Once in Tanzania, got burglarized also in Cape Verde. But nothing really, really where my, my life was, you know, somebody's holding a gun to my head and looked like I was going about to die in that sense. I read on your uh, website that you also had a happy experience in Cameroon. Yes, that's right. That's where I met my wife. So Cameroon has some big blessings and some challenges. It's going to be an interesting chapter in my book, that's for sure. What's her name? Her name is Rejoice, as in to celebrate, Rejoice. <laughs> rejoice, what a beautiful name. Rejoice, you weren't killed by those yeah. muggers, and Rejoice, you've met... Rejoice. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Francis Tapon joins us by phone on Travel with Rick Steves from Luxor in Egypt as he celebrates completing his five-year voyage to every nation in Africa. He's putting together a documentary series from his trip, and it's called The Unseen Africa. You can follow his adventures online at tapon.com. That's spelled T-A-P-O-N. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Heidi's calling from San Diego. Heidi, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick and team. Thanks for taking my call. I spent eight years of my childhood in sub-Saharan Africa and have enjoyed visiting with my kids and husband over the past few years. I have many memories of crossing international borders and remote areas. Um, In the 90s, we didn't have a car that could handle the roads, so we often took public transport or hitchhiked country to country, which is how most people get around, since few people have cars of their own. Uh, I have vivid memories of crossing no man's land between Mozambique and Malawi on the back of a bicycle for a small fee, or sitting on a pile of luggage in the back of a pickup truck. Of course, some of these crossings require hours of waiting, which is part of the experience. But could Francis share one of his most memorable remote border crossing experiences? Good question. So I guess one of the, the odd one was when I was going from the DRC, so I just drove across the Democratic Republic of Congo, and that was a two-week journey through mostly mud. And then I, to get to Central African Republic, there was no bridge. I expected a bridge there, or at least a big ferry boat. There is no ferry boat to get into Central African Republic. They balanced my car on six canoes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And you made it. So the car didn't my fall in. entire <laughs> life saving. Yes. No, it didn't fall in. But that was a very interesting border crossing. Were borders hurdles in your mind, or, or were they not very stressful? 
Oh, they were the worst part about traveling in Africa yeah. is getting visas and crossing borders. And especially if you throw in the car into it, so you've yeah. got to take your car across customs, that complicates it even worse. The caller was saying that she was mostly hitchhiking and, and taking uh, public transport. That's one beautiful thing about uh, you don't have to worry about the customs as much. Francis, so. even when I was taking a car into Morocco from Spain, the common standard operating procedure was you hire a kid who shepherds you through, yep. and he knows how to whose palms to grease and what hurdles to yep. jump around or through. Did you have that same That's sort of thing? That's what I had to do, too. So you hire a shepherd to yep, get you through the, the red tape of the border. Yep. So many border crossings, there is a certain amount of, like, you know, I'm going to do this more quickly for you if you just give me some money. Or if my visa is overstayed, they give them a little bit of extra money, they'll just turn the other way and they'll just stamp your exit. I'd like to hear just a little more about Heidi's experience there going from Mozambique to Malawi. Well, it wasn't hearing it was adventuresome. I was in high school, and we were, like I said, we didn't have a car, so we took the public transport to the border, and at this particular remote border, it was about two miles of just a dirt road, no man's land, to get to the other immigration office on the other side. Right. So there were young boys with their bicycles, and you would just sit on the back and give them a little bit of cash, pay a few extra if you had some bags, uh-huh. and then you'd bounce, bounce on the dirt road across the border to the other side, and they'd drop you off at the little, the little hut. And then you get your passport stamped and go on through and catch a pickup truck or public transport on the other side. Hey, Heidi, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you very much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francis Tapon. He's just finishing up a five-year epic journey where he visited each country in Africa, all 54 of them. And he's written about it. You can read about his experiences online at tapon.org. Francis, when you think about traveling, all the experience you've had in Africa, if you were to live anywhere in Africa, having experienced every country in Africa, where would you live? Great question. In the mainland Africa, I would put Namibia at the top of the list. If you consider the island nations, I really uh, liked uh, Mauritius which is in the east coast of, off the east coast of Africa. Uh-huh. Algeria is also really handless. I really, really loved Algeria so much. Hey, we've got uh, Lindsay on the line from Houston, and she's got some comments or questions on Namibia, which is your favorite country in Africa. Lindsay, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick, thanks for taking it. So, Francis, just a couple of questions. Um, what would one or two of the best experiences be to have in Namibia? And then second, I'm not as brave as you, so... For two young female travelers, would you recommend doing a self-drive in Namibia in terms of safety, or should I go with a guide or a tour company? Namibia is super safe. Uh, even as a single woman traveling, uh, you, I feel utmost confidence in, in telling you to go there by yourself or going there with a partner or whatever. Places to go, I would say, look at Tosasle, which is the, uh, the big sand dunes, which is some of the biggest sand dunes in the world. Also, you would consider, if you like hiking, uh, they have the second biggest, deepest canyon in the world after the Grand Canyon, which is uh, Fish River Canyon, I believe that's the name. It's in the southern part of Namibia. And, of course, Itosha National Park, which is in the northern part of Namibia. It's great. The capital, Vindhoek, which is voted the, the cleanest capital in Africa, and it really is clean by any standard. Um, it's just uh, really nice. In fact, the whole country is. It only has about 2.2 million people, and it's an enormous country. So you really have a lot of place to go camping safety and security is very good. So definitely encourage you to check it out. Lutherans always say there's more Lutherans in Namibia than there are in America or something like that. Is Did you notice there's a lot of Western culture in Namibia and uh, a lot of Christianity? Definitely. Um, about 6% of the population is white still. Back before apartheid ended, uh, it was never very enforced apartheid, but it was around 9 or 10% white or so. But the culture and the German culture, you can definitely see it, especially on certain cities along the coast. 
their influence is, is still uh, visible, at least in the architecture, if not by the people themselves. So German. So uh, South Africa would have a Dutch colonial heritage, and Namibia has a more of a German colonial heritage? That's right. Francis, you say you'd live in, in Namibia, on the continent in Africa, if you, if you were to live somewhere there. Is that because it's just more stable and, and more affluent relative to other countries? That's part of the reason. Uh, I mean, South Africa has that too, but the problem with South Africa is that there's so much racism on all sides. I didn't like that about, you know, if you're just going to visit South Africa, it's a nice place to visit, but as far as living, I found Namibians, the overtone of racism and the hangover of apartheid is not, that heavy cloud is not there. And Namibia is also, I love deserts, and I love the space, and I love the order. It's a nice balance. That's what Namibia is at. It's got some of the the wonderful attributes of Africa, and it doesn't have some of the disorderliness that some of the countries have. So it's got a nice blend of, of both cultures in there. Hey, Lindsay from Houston, thanks so much for your call. Thanks, Rick. Have fun in Namibia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francis Tapon about his odyssey in Africa, having visited all 54 countries. Uh, Francis, to me, I'm so tuned into good governance lately. I mean, good governance that defends a, a middle class and brings a country stability. I just think it, it can't be underestimated. And when you look at the, the joy and the tragedy of different countries in Africa, it comes down to good governance a lot. Uh, I hear lately Rwanda just has a remarkably successful government. What's your general take on the political stability and the trajectory of Africa and the challenges when it comes to good governance? You're right that Rwanda has some definite bright spots in the continent as far as really having cleaned up its act in so many ways. The downside, of course, is that Paul Kagame has basically been a dictator there. He's just taken over completely, and so that's not a, a true democracy in that sense. As far as good governance, I would look more at Botswana as the shining beacon in Africa. Botswana really seems to have done a, a fabulous job at doing it. But overall in the continent, governance is, is one of their weakest points. There is, uh, I think his name is Mo Ibrahim. He has a prize. He would give a million dollars to any African leader who does an exemplary job. And in the past, I think, 10 years, he's only given it out about five years out of the past huh. 10 years. He gives it as a reward for, for African leaders to say, listen, if you do well, I'll give you a million dollars. You can retire for life in most African countries with a million dollars. Take this and just be a good governor and, and step down from power. You know, look at Mugabe. It took till he was 93 years old and he finally was forced out. So I think the, the future prognosis of Africa is still kind of cloudy with regard to governance, unfortunately. Hmm. Well, you've certainly had a chance to meet in a first-hand way the people of Africa and come home with some amazing, amazing impressions, I would imagine. I'm still struck, Francis, by your comment that crossing borders was the most uh, stressful thing about the whole experience. What's it like getting visas to each country? Is it a straightforward thing where you just go to the capital of the neighboring country and you say, I'm an American tourist, I got a round-trip ticket, I got plenty of money, I want to go here for tourism purposes, and they give you the visa? Or how complicated is it? I would say of the 54 countries, maybe about half of them are relatively straightforward and easy, like you described, and the other half are complete nightmares. I've waited for my Niger visa. I had to wait a couple of weeks. I've had to wait weeks to months for certain visas to come through. In general, look where the tourists are, and those are the easy places to get visas, like Morocco, East Africa, most like Kenya, Tanzania. Those are pretty much you arrive and you get it on demand. And all the island nations, generally straightforward. But many countries, especially in West Africa, are very complicated, difficult processes to get the visa. I always did eventually get them, but right. it's not easy. And what makes it especially difficult is getting it on the road. 
Now, a lot you, of times they want you to get it from your home country. You were a bit of an odd duck and determined to go to every country. If you're just a, a lighthearted tourist that wants to go to the five most enjoyable countries in Africa, which five countries would you recommend? I would probably say that uh, Namibia would be top on the list. I really liked Tunisia. Almost anywhere in North Africa, actually, is great, except for Libya right now. Morocco, of course, is great. Egypt, you know, I just got off the Sanctuary Retreat sunboat in Egypt right here. It's this luxury cruise ship. And nobody's here right now in Egypt. The price is it's amazing. It's so cheap in yeah, Egypt. I was on you one of these. You can take an Uber across <laughs> all of Cairo for like three bucks or two bucks. I was on one of these amazing river boats in the Nile just recently, and there was like 10 tourists and 20 staff, and we were just had the whole boat to ourselves. It's tragic for Egypt's tourism industry, but it's a delightful time for people who have the nerve to go there. Exactly. Exactly. No, I definitely encourage people to check it out. Definitely should put Tanzania on the list as well. Tanzania. And, and which country breaks your heart from its struggles and it's just a difficult political times right now when, it, when you feel like it just should be doing better? The number one always on the list is the Democratic Republic of Congo. There's never been a country that has so much potential mm. and yet has consistently, mm. consistently failed to live up to that potential. It's just you know, you can understand that some countries like, let's say, Chad or, or Central African Republic, they're resource poor compared to the DRC, but the DRC is amazing. And yet, the other one is, that's kind of sad is uh, Eritrea. Eritrea mm. has so much potential and yet is under a dictatorship. And it's, I've heard Ethiopia is actually a great place to travel. Yeah, Ethiopia is definitely has so much to offer and, and it's very interesting. And Americans get a two-year visa there uh, pretty much automatically. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been venturing through Africa with Francis Tapon. Francis is just concluding a five-year odyssey visiting all 54 countries in Africa. And he writes about it on his blog at tapon.org, T-A-P-O-N.org. Francis, you fell in love with Rejoice from Cameroon. How did that happen, and, and what was it about Rejoice that stole your heart? So I met her on in Cameroon on an app called Badu, which is basically like a Tinder app, if you will. Um, so kind wait, of a wait a minute, there's, there's a Tinder app for somebody. travelers in Africa, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, basically. Yeah, it's similar to Tinder app. Okay. And so basically, uh, we met, and you know, I just thought, okay, this is fun, and this is interesting. But I realized, you know, one of the challenges for me is I'm not that interested in having children. I'm not um, traveling all the time. I'm a nomad. And most women like to have some stability in their life, and they want children. Rejoice wasn't that interested in all that stuff. She's a nomad herself. She comes from a Fulani tribe. And so she likes to move. And so we just found ourselves incredibly compatible uh, right from the get-go. So we got married in Zambia, and uh, we've been traveling to 30 countries together since then. And it's just an amazing experience. And I enjoyed the uh, video clip where you popped the question to her, gave her the ring, and then you both jumped off on this incredible bungee jump. Can people see that at your website? Yes, they can, yeah. Um, what a uh, romantic you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you notice, Rick, that I popped the question before I pushed her off the edge? <laughs> oh, she never really have, seen I don't know anything she, like this in her life. The look she on grew her up fa- in a village in Africa, so she, she didn't really imagine... And she had a GoPro mounted on her forehead or something so you could see her expression. <laughs> you, I don't know if that's devious or loving, but it was, sure was a good video clip. <laughs> She'll always remember how I proposed her. She will always remember that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring Africa with Francis Tapon. Francis, thanks so much and best wishes with you and rejoice. Thank you so much, Rick.
You can listen to our earlier interviews with Francis on Travel with Rick Steves from five years ago when he was just about to leave for Morocco and from three years ago when he had reached Tanzania. We have links to our show archives with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. 877-333-RICK. That's our number, and next we check in with guides from France with tips for a great getaway to the peaceful backroads and beaches of Normandy. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Picture this. Half-timbered towns with tall cathedral spires, thatched roof cottages dotted among green rolling hills with dramatic cliffs, cliffs that lead down to the quiet beaches that once hosted the Battles of D-Day. There are many reasons the Normandy coast of France is an ideal getaway, especially for people from busy Paris, because it's the closest coastline to the capital. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by three French tour guides to tell us why Normandy is among their favorite regions of France. Patrick Vidal, Virginie Moyet, and Antoine Bonfils, bonjour. 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 Patrick, how is Normandy distinct from the rest of France? This is a, this is a very green country, and when you talk about green, you talk about rain, obviously. Mm-hmm. So we are on the western part of France, and we're very close to the ocean, so it rains quite a lot. That's one of those regions in France, and uh, it's very disappointing, but there's no wine. You don't produce any wine. Um, because you don't have vineyard, you've got apple trees, and from those apple trees, you make cider and calvados. Ah, so the, the alcoholic uh, favorite local drinks would be alcoholic cider and the calvados, which is kind of a fire water with which apple? Which is kind of a yeah, brandy, oh, okay. and, uh, distil- yeah. distillation of apples. Virginie, how, how would a Parisian look at Normandy? Well, it's very close to uh, Paris. Paris has 20 arrondissements. Mm-hmm. spread like a snail around Paris. Mm-hmm. And because it's about two hours by train or three hours when you go to Normandy, it's seen as the 21st arrondissement of Paris. Parisians go there for the weekend. They enjoy the coast. The coast of Normandy is different from any other coast in France. We have the cliffs, lots of cliffs, you know, very similar to what you have in uh, southern England. Mm-hmm. Etretat, a famous picture of the the white cliffs of Etretat, and also famous for its uh, resort. So Normandy is actually jokingly referred to as another neighborhood of Paris because the Parisians just love to take a quick trip over and and the public transportation is so good and the freeways are so good that you could very reasonably get away for the weekend. It's packed uh, on the weekend. Antoine, when you think of the cliffs of Brittany and the cliffs of Normandy, like the cliffs of southern England, a lot of English people come to Normandy for vacation also. Why would an English person come to France? What do they look for when they come to enjoy France? I think first, what what did they miss in England? It's old stones and old houses that we have in Normandy, Mm -hmm. like what we call Maison à Colombage, that are these very ancient houses made of Mm -hmm. torchy, it's kind of earth mixed with straw, and huge beams. Okay. So I think they do enjoy very much old things that they don't have so much in Britain. The distinct architecture. Yeah. And France is as famous for great food as of course England they are is cheese. as famous for looking for great but, food. You know, when you when you think of the British coming to France, you've got to think about the southeast of England, which is very urban, coming to the closest part of France, which is very rural. And there then, are ferry boats going from South oh, directly across to absolutely Normandy. Absolutely, there are six or seven ports where they start from, and it's very, very easy to link Normandy with, uh, with England. Now, if you're an American or a Brit or anybody going to Normandy, anywhere in France for that matter, you're looking for the food. I'm, when I do my travels, you know, in some countries I'm more tuned into the cuisine than in others. And, of course, in France, you want to be taking advantage of the cuisine, but you want to also remember to, it's just smart to eat locally. 
Virginie, when you want to eat locally in Normandy, what should you remember? Well, it's every region of France has different food. And uh, in Normandy, when you're traveling there, you see cows everywhere. Green pastures mean cows, happy cows. So we have lots of cheese coming from Normandy. One of the most famous one is probably Camembert. There is also a little town called Camembert, so that's where the... Actually, a town called Camembert. Mm-hmm. That's mm. where the name comes from. And it's a cheese, the Camembert de Normandie is actually a cheese that is uh, protected. Like, you know, we have wine that are protected in France. The mm. name cannot be changed. Oh, so Camembert can only be made in Normandy. Well, there is the Camembert de Normandie, which is about only 5% of Camembert. Mm-hmm come from Normandy. There are other camembert made in France, but this camembert has to respect certain rules. You need to have a raw cow milk, and you need about two liters of that raw milk to make a camembert, and it has to be boxed in a wooden box. Antoine Bonfils, when you're going to Normandy with a group, what do you enjoy exposing them to from a cuisine and a, and a gastronomy point of view? Uh, you're going to think that all French are heavy drinkers, but I love Calvados. I think it's something special. And they have this expression, which is true normand, that you have in the middle of a meal to try to digest before the, 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 rest, next, course, the yeah. next course arrives. With a little it, Calvados. Yes. So mm. it helps you to have a, a lunch that could take for ages. Like, uh, <laughs> I was going to say that. two a... to three hours. So thanks to Calvados, they can have this famous true normand and keep on eating and chatting endlessly. So we've talked about Calvados, Camembert, Cider. Those are three C's. I always uh, hear about the four C's of Normandy, the, the fourth one being cream, La right? Crème. La crème. La crème. And uh, one of the famous crème, cream, is the crème d'Issigny. D'Issigny, that's a small town, another small mm. town, and the mm-hmm. cream has to come from that, that town to be named like this. And actually the, the name d'Issigny led to the name, the family name Disney that you have in the U.S., Oh, is that right? Yes. So Disney has a connection with Normandy. Because people from <laughs> Isigny left, Isigny. they went to England. D- so Isigny, I see, like of Isigny. Of yeah. Isigny became Disney. Disney. They moved Disney. to England, then to Ireland, I believe, and then to the U.S. And that's why they have all those fine cheeses at Disneyland. Maybe well, not. Fine. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we are appreciating Normandy uh, with our three French guides, Antoine Bonfils, Patrick Vidal, and Virginie Moret. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Diane is calling from Flower Mound, Texas. Diane, thanks for your call. Hi. I'm traveling with some friends, and we're going to have a limited amount of time in different places. In the American cemeteries in the Normandy area and the other towns in the Normandy area, can you tell me in a budget and a limited time what are the must-sees and must-dos? Now, first of all, you were mentioning the cemeteries, so you'd be talking about the D-Day sites, and of course, uh, many right. people go to Normandy for the D-Day sites. So let's talk about that just for a moment. Uh, Patrick, if you're wanting an introduction to the D-Day sites and you just have a day or two to dedicate to that, what would be a good itinerary for an American uh, coming to Normandy? There's two main options. I mean, uh, the first one is to uh, you rent a car and mm-hmm. uh, you do it yourself. Public transportation up there is not very easy. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's a train leading from Caen to Bayeux and after that, going to the sites themselves is not very easy. So you make Bayeux with your, your headquarters? I would make Bayeux my headquarters. And yeah, that's definitely. the town. We know the name because Bayeux Tapestry and yeah, so absolutely. on. It's famous for the thousand years ago Norman invasion of England 
and it's also famous as the first city, really, uh, after the the landings that that was relieved. And now relieved that's your, in, your yeah. home base, and there's good facilities for touring from Bayo. Yeah, yeah, from Bayo, everything is very um, reachable, and mm-hmm. by car, it's pretty, it's pretty easy. Or you can also uh, hire one of those local guide, very often British guy, who are taking you around for a day or half a day or a couple in a, of days in a minibus tour. In a minibus tour, so you wouldn't need transportation. That these guys place. are great. So those guys are, yeah, and he's an English native English speaker. He knows. He lives World War II history. And you, you you share the cost by eight people, and it's it's good business for him, it's, and it's quite affordable. Absolutely, it's very affordable, and it's good information, and it's a day well spent when you when you spend some time with those guys. Antoine, what is the best museum to understand the D-Day landings? What what is your favorite way to learn the story? Well, I was very impressed the first time I went to Caen right. to see the Memorial Museum of Caen. C A E N Caen. That's it, and it's really impressive by the size and the documentation they have there. And um, quite a lot of movies and uh, things even French don't know very well about the, the help we receive from the Brits. And this is a museum and a memorial, and it's woven together so thoughtfully. It is just a powerful experience. I would completely agree. That's your best single museum. Virginie, if you want to actually go to the beaches and see where the landings were, what do you find the most uh, evocative and, and interesting? When you go to Omaha Beach, you are you know very close to the American Cemetery, and uh, you relieve the the movie, the Saving Private uh, Ryan, mm-hmm. in a different way. I mean, if you think about the movie, at least you have a perception of a glimpse of what may have gone on on that day. And uh, if you have a, a private guide on that beach, you, they just make it very real for you. Is Aromanche, is that on Omaha Beach, the town of yes, Aromanche? Yes, Aromanche is, a, it's not on Omaha Beach, it's at the end of Omaha Beach. In fact, it's starting the, uh, and, I can't remember and, if it's Juno or Saul, but the British sector. And but, that's where they made that huge Port Winston, is that right? Absolutely, yeah, that's where, there were in fact two ports, two uh, temporary ports that they were building to try to avoid using the deep water port of Cherbourg or Le Havre or any, mm-hmm. any town around. And the American one, in fact, was taken away by a storm. So they've reused the, uh, everything they could have from the American one, brought them to Aromanche and finished Aromanche and made it the, the landing place for all the goods and everything they needed. And that was just a Herculean effort there. I mean, it's just incredible how they built this massive port almost overnight. Patrick, uh, getting back to Diane's original comment about the cemeteries, what do you find the most uh, powerful cemetery experiences for a tourist to the D-Day landings? There are two of them which are, to me, are the, the most moving ones. Definitely the American one, because, yeah, because that's, the we, one. that's the one that's your country and you mm-hmm. see a lot of stuff. It's over 9,000 uh, graves and it's definitely very moving. And if you can get there when the, uh, the flag is coming down at the end of the day, you get music in the chapel and things like that. It's pretty impressive and, uh, and very, very moving. There's another one that people don't necessarily think first time of when they go there is to go to the German one as well. And that's very important because you always forget that uh, all those young kid German didn't ask to be either. And they yeah. were exactly in the same situation. And, uh, and this was the end of the, the war when Hitler was running out of normal aged fighters and he was throwing every little kid into the war and all these old people. And uh, 21,000 people were buried in the German cemetery there. And that is quite thought provoking. It is very moving. And I think it does put things into perspective that you're a 17 year old and your country is at war. You don't choose to go to war. So it's, I think it's very important for Americans to, or any uh, people visiting uh, Normandy to actually go to both cemeteries. Diane in Texas, does that give you some yeah. ideas? Yes, it does. And I did want to ask about Mont Saint-Michel. Is that worth a visit? Now, first so. of all, technically, is Mont Saint-Michel in Brittany or Normandy, and how do we okay. know? We leave it to the Norman. <laughs> I'm from Brittany, but we leave it to the Norman. <laughs> and uh, you definitely want to go to Mont Saint-Michel. And the best time to go there is to spend a night. 
arrive late when the crowds of tourists are actually leaving. And you'll enjoy the wall, the rempart, what we call the rempart almost for yourself. Have a nice restaurant there, enjoy the sunset, watch the tide, amazing tide, one of the strongest uh, in Europe. And by staying overnight, you have a chance for something that is one of my most vivid memories of Mont Saint-Michel is going to the morning prayers at the Abbey. You have to know that most people who visit the Mont Saint-Michel, it's the most visited site outside of Paris in France, do not make it to the Abbey. Which, really? you know, is the marvel. That's, it's called the Merveille. That's the, the reason for Mont Saint-Michel. Yeah, most people do not go there. Many people just buy a mini Eiffel Tower on the Mont Saint-Michel and don't go to the Abbey. So the little town on the island just circles the Abbey, and there's one street that kind of spirals up all the way to the top of the island. And you go up there, and there's uh, special events, there's sound and light, there's masses, there's tours. There's uh, It's just a very powerful experience. But what to do is to go at 6.15 in the morning, so you uh-huh. have to wake up. Uh-huh. And uh, you wait by the door and a nun will come with a big key and open the wooden door of the abbey and you follow her in silence and you get to the abbey, which is, you know, a bit crowded during the day, but it's just going to be those 15 or so uh, monks and nuns and they're doing morning prayer. They're ringing the bell the old way. And if you're at the right time of the year, you can have sunrise on the eastern side of the um, stained glass window. Antoine, what do you remember in your visits to Mont-Saint-Michel about the tide and the, and the mud flats that spread out from the abbey? I don't remember much because most of the time I was there, there was no, uh, the water was, uh, was away. It was way out. So you yeah. can, you're on, it's an island, but you can't see the water because it's so far away and you're yeah. surrounded by mud flats. Exactly. Patrick, have you ever seen the tide coming in? Yeah, I've seen the tide coming in a few times, yeah, and it's, it can be very impressive. I can't remember who was right. I think it was Victor Hugo who said that it's coming up at the speed of a galloping horse. Amazing. And it's not far from that. I mean, it's not exactly that, but it's not far from that. On, on very high tide coefficient and on the right time of the day and the, and the year, you really have the water coming. So you do you have to be careful. In. If you're walking, wandering out there in the tide flats, there's infamous quicksand and there's also the tide coming in at the speed streams. of a galloping horse and streams. Mm-hmm. And I was alluding to the fact that historically, Mont Saint-Michel has shifted between Brittany and Normandy depending on the flow of the river. The river was the border, and sometimes it would flow to the left or the right of Mont Saint-Michel. Uh, Diane, I hope that gives you some ideas. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. We're exploring Normandy with French tour guides Virginie, Antoine, and Patrick on Travel with Rick Steves. Keith is calling in from Scottsdale, Arizona. Keith, thanks for your call. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you. Yeah, do you have a question or comment for Antoine, Patrick, or Virginie? I've got a comment, actually. My wife and I had a lovely trip to... Normandy area several years ago, and one of the most moving things that we experienced was the little village of Angleville-Auplain. In the middle of this village is a 12th century church that was the center of some very fierce fighting hmm. during World War II. And the church actually changed hands between the uh, Allies and the Germans during several days of fighting. Two American medics set up an aid station in the church and treated Americans and French and Germans equally. It's a beautiful story. There's now a stained glass commemorating the two medics. Just the thought um, of that. Still, there is still bloodstains on the pews. Patrick, have you had an experience in this little town? Uh, yes. We, we do the tour of the place with our tour members, and uh, we meet the city mayor who welcomes us into the church, tells the story. Everybody's in tears at Whoa. the end of the experience, and everybody's so thankful to see this Frenchman taking care of the memory of the American in that kind of situation. But for once, we are in a situation where we see war 
as it is. We don't see glory of some soldiers jumping up the cliffs and coming like on Hollywood movies. We see guys who are taking care of dying young people and blood uh, drops on the floor. It's it's very moving. It's very touching. And it's very and it's, real. And it's very real. And uh, the, the place Keith is talking about is Angoville O Plain. A-N-G-O-V-I-L-L-E-A-U-P-L-A-I-N. Keith, it sounds like that was a, a powerful experience. It, it really was. I, I highly recommend it to anybody that uh, actually take the time to go there. It is yeah. very Give yourself some extra time in Normandy because there's a lot more than the, than the slam-bam two or three sites that most people visit. Thanks for your call, Keith. My pleasure. Thank you. So we've been talking about Normandy. We've been joined by Virginie Moret, Patrick Vidal, Antoine Bonfils, three friends and fellow tour guides, all from France and all adept at taking Americans around Normandy. We didn't talk about Rouen, wow, which has this beautiful plague cemetery, we didn't talk about Anfleur, which has the wonderful Eric Satie Museum, which is a, an amazing musical experience. Uh, we didn't talk about the Bayeux Tapestry, and we didn't talk about the whole Viking heritage. Antoine, Patrick, uh, Virginie, before we wrap things up, is there any other little angle of, of Normandy that you'd like to share, Antoine? Well, to, to, to end with uh, Cherbourg, the French know it very well, not especially because of, of the beauty of the place, but more because of Jacques Demy, the cinema director. And he's well-respected. A very famous one called Les Parapluies de Cherbourg, which is a a musical comedy. And Patrick, what is another dimension of uh, Normandy we might want to not neglect? I think what you said about the the Viking is very important because uh, Normandy means the North men, the men from the North. And uh, in the years, beginning of the 900, the uh, the Vikings has been raided the western part of France very often and went all the way up to Paris on the Seine River. And at some point, the king of France said, OK, that's enough of that. Let's give them some land so they can settle down and, and leave us alone. And that's what they did. Because these they, uh, people from such difficult terrain up in Norway, they were just good at boats and they yeah. didn't have any farmland. So they came down and they found beautiful farmland in Normandy. And, voilà. and yeah. then later on, from Normandy, from the land of the Northmen, was the springboard for invading the Norman invasion Absolutely. of England. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's 1066. Where. Every French school kid knows that date well. <laughs> Virginie, what's another dimension of Normandy? Well, linking it as the lots of harbors on the coast, uh, it was a rich place, you know, mainly uh, wool. So if mm-hmm. you think about Rouen, Bayeux, Honfleur, uh, Rouen and Bayeux have amazing cathedrals. Mm-hmm. So when you go to, to Normandy, the small towns have money from the Middle Ages, lots of half-timbered houses, cobblestone, and you really feel like you're in a different part of France with the, the style of the Norman houses. Virginie, Patrick, and Antoine, let's just finish. If you were writing a guidebook to Normandy, just very briefly, what photograph would you put on the cover and why? Antoine. <laughs> a big, nice, huge cow. Cow? A cow. What is yes. a cow? A cow. A cow. A cow. A cow. A cow. A cow. <laughs> Sorry. One of the seas of Normandy. The cream. Yeah, so exactly. Dairy, dairy, dairy. Yeah, but huge one. Nice. Patrick. I would try to get a picture where I can have a little bit of the green land, a little bit of the of the cliff, just to make this link between the importance of the coast and uh, and how agricultural and green the place okay. is. A, a fertile and dramatic uh, mm. uh, place with a, with a beautiful coastline. And Virginie? Being from Brittany, I have to say that in Normandy, they still have a bocage, which is what you call the hedgerows, which is linked to the Norman time, Norman invasion, and also important during uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. All of those hedgerows everywhere. Wow, I think I'd buy all your guidebooks just based on the beautiful cover. Thank you all very much for helping us better understand Normandy. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at the BBC's Wogan House Studios in London for their help this week. 
You can be a caller on the show and talk to Rick and his tour guide friends from Europe in our latest recording sessions. Find out how you can participate at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.